This is the podcast for RUF at App State. Everyone is welcome and no one is unexpected. For more information, visit us at appstate.ruf.org. Welcome back to RUF. Uh, if, if you haven't met me, yeah, we did it. You did it, Hannah. You did it. If you haven't met yet, my name is Rob Heron. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. And I really would love, if I haven't gotten to do this with you yet, I really would love to take you to coffee or to a meal. This is my number. I'm going to put it on the screen right now um, like an old man. You can fax me. I really would love to get together with you, uh, or you can just send me a meaningful gift in your life. And our staff, which is Carissa and Sarah and Danny, would also love to get together with you. We are here in Boone to get to know you. Even if we already know you, we're here to know you better. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us. If you need anything, if you have questions about anything, or you just want to waste some time with us, we want to do that with you. What is RUF? This is a very imperfect place, but it's a place that exists because we believe that we need and that we have a perfect God. And we want to invite you into a space where you can grow in your faith, where you can find community, which really means to, to be known and to know. And we are inviting you to ask questions, giving you a space to ask those questions. And th- that really leads us into what this series is going to be this semester, which is big questions. Big questions. I don't think any of us really like being interrupted. And that's what questions do. They come into your life and they interrupt your focus. But interruptions can often be a gift. It can be a big gift. Like if someone interrupts you while you're speaking and says, hey, I've got to interrupt you, but behind you there is the cutest puppy in the world in a stroller. Or if someone interrupts you and says, like, in mid-sentence and says, hey, I've got to interrupt you. There's a steamroller that's like five feet from you and it's about to crush you. These are good interruptions because they take your focus from maybe important things and they tell you that there is something else that's even more important. The big questions of life, who am I? Where am I going? What's my purpose? Do I have hope? These are interruptions, but they're gifts. They interrupt our focus from from the things that you're experiencing, the things you're going through, and they put your focus on something that is even bigger, on something that is even more ultimate. And they send you really on an adventure. And this is what a guy named Matthew Lee Anderson says about questions. They send our attention away from ourselves towards something else. They take us out on an adventure even when we question ourselves. So this series is an uh, invitation to adventure, to question, and to have your attention drawn toward the God who is big enough to handle your questions and himself is the answer. So there's not a promise in the series to answer all your questions, but to point you to the God who is that answer. So let's read tonight, Acts 17, 22 through 31. So this is from the New Testament in the Bible, and I'm going to read it and pray and we'll jump in. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. 
Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. And we ask that it would set us free. And even now that it would set us free to ask good questions, to have our attention drawn toward big things, because you are a big God. And we ask this in your name. Amen. What comes to mind for you when you think about someone who is very religious? Very religious. What picture comes to mind? Is it someone who claims to have prophecies standing out on a street corner? Is it someone who is awkward? Is it someone who talks about God in every sentence or knows a lot about the Bible or their own religious book or text? Is it someone who makes you feel uncomfortable? Is it someone who makes you feel judged? What does it mean to be very religious? What is it to be religious? My assumption is that at least some of you in this room, at least sometimes, feel distant from Christianity or feel really strange in a space like this because you don't consider yourself very religious or particularly religious at all. Maybe your idea of being religious is of being ignorant or being willing to believe fairy tales and you don't want to be that. What does it mean to be religious? Maybe you consider yourself religious, but you struggle to understand how Christianity, maybe that's your religion, how it connects to your everyday experience. So what does it mean to be religious? And that's the big question I want us to address tonight. What does it mean to be religious? And I want to address this from the Christian perspective by looking at three things about being religious from Acts 17. The inescapability of religion, the failure of religion, and the hope of religion. So the inescapability of religion, the failure of religion, and the hope of religion. So first let's look at the inescapability of being religious. I would say it's common to view being religious now kind of like we view other hobbies. Some people are really into fly fishing and I am not. Some people are really into painting and some aren't. Some are into football and some aren't. Maybe the same would be true about being religious. Some people are just religious and some people aren't. It's more a matter of personality and preference than anything. Well, that is the exact opposite of Paul's perspective represented here in Acts 17. So Paul, who who is the the person that we find in this text, he was a man who became a follower of Jesus and who claimed and preached a message that Jesus died on a Roman cross and then was raised from the dead and is himself God. And he went around his part of the world 
preaching this message. And he is here in Athens, far away from his home. And so he's brought by these people of Athens to a place called the Areopagus, which was this big place where people would go to hear new ideas. So that's where Paul finds himself. And he's speaking to these men of Athens, these people of Athens, who are primarily, we find out earlier in the chapter, these philosophers known as Epicureans and Stoics. And Epicureans are basically this group of people who believe that belief in God or gods may be true or maybe not, but it's basically irrelevant. They, don't, they didn't deny the existence of gods. They basically just believe that whether they exist or not, it doesn't really matter. What really matters in life is pain and pleasure because that's what makes up our experience. And the Stoics, they believe that everyone was from a, a common stock and we belong to a, a common divinity experiencing the divine. So they, didn't, they also didn't deny the existence of God or gods. But for them, in the end, what was most important, and this is true for both groups, was living your life on your own strength. Really, in the end, that's what mattered. But I want, I'm pointing this out to you, hopefully, because it indicates that we're not really that far from Athens in the first century. But also, I'm pointing this out because these are the people that Paul calls very religious. And, and again, they believed in God or God's sure, but their version of religion wouldn't likely offend any of us. Because in the end, what really mattered was operating on your own strength taking charge of your own life. And still, Paul calls them very religious. And the reason he calls them very religious is not just because they had a bunch of gods, but because from the Bible's perspective, everyone is religious. Religion is the belief in and worship of things that are beyond the natural, the stuff you can see and touch and taste and hold, that's the natural. Religion is belief in in anything and worship of what goes beyond that. That's what it means to be religious. And so being religious is not something that is a matter of personality or preference. It's inescapable. It's an essential part of being alive. And this would be true for, for you, even if you are running as fast as you can away from religion. There's a comedian named Brian Regan, and he, he made, makes fun of, in a, in a bit, an old piece of workout equipment called the step, which is just that. It's popular in the 90s, and it's just a block of plastic. And people bought millions of them. And in the commercial, you'd see people running up and down on them with kind of rhythmic jazz music. And Regan, he imagines someone ordering it and then racing down their steps all the way to their mailbox to get their step and then excitedly bringing it up the steps back into their house. (laughs) Essentially, when we act as though we can run away from religion, we could escape religion, we're being like the people ordering the step, but basically in reverse. In trying to run as fast away as we can from the step, we go down the steps toward another step. When you are trying to run away from religion, you can't help but be religious and find yourself only running toward just more religion. What does that mean? Well, if you believe that it is right and important to reject religion, you are believing in a reality, what's right or good, that is supernatural. Good or the right or morality is not something you can hold in your hand. You can't taste it. You can't see it. 
but you are believing it in that moment. Or if you say, whether or not God or gods are real doesn't matter. What, what matters is living a meaningful life. What you're believing is that there is such a thing as meaning, which is supernatural. You can't hold it. You can't hug it. You can't see it. Even when you are trying to be anti-religious, you are religious. When you critique religion, you are religious because every single one of us is religious and we can't escape it. But this would also be true for you who would call yourself a Christian. This points out to us that we can't divide our lives up into the religious part of my life and the unreligious part of my life. Work and dating and your classes are not unreligious because every part of your life is religious. Because in everything you do, you're acting as though supernatural things, meaning and purpose and hope are real. And each one of these things is religious because it's made by God and it matters to him. I mean, really, as one author that I really like has put it, life is too short to pretend you're not religious. So let's stop pretending either that I can be anti-religious or we need to stop pretending that there's some part of my life that God isn't related to. Because the God who is, the God that Paul cares about, is a God who made everything and who demands all of us. But being religious isn't just about believing, it's also about worshiping. Which brings us to the second thing, the failure of religion. The failure of religion. So the passage from Acts makes it clear, religion fails us. But it's not maybe in the way that we would typically think. Religion doesn't fail us because now there are so many religions. Because that's nothing new. Because when Paul is on his way to the Areopagus, he's passing statue upon statue of Greek gods, just rows of them, like grocery aisles full of every variety of gods. But religion does also, it doesn't fail us because we can't know God. That's not why it fails us. So Paul says in verse 23, speaking to the Athenians, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. So as, as Paul passes statues, all of these ones, there's, there's a statue in the midst of it, an, an altar that says, to the unknown, unknown God. It's an altar, this dedication to an unknown God, basically just in case they missed one. And Paul's response to this is in uh, 24, uh, in 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. You worship God as unknown, but well, he's made himself known to you. And he continues in 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The God who can be known, he's not like the gods that you build temples to, or the ones that you carve into stone. I mean, he's not greedy for gold and silver. He doesn't need to be sanded down like a, an idol made out of wood. Instead, he's the one who gives to you life and breath and everything. That's who he is. And Paul says in, in 26 through 28, this God is also near to you. He made all people and he gave them all places so that they would feel their way toward him. He made us with an inescapable religiosity, a need to seek after him. And yet Paul says he's quoting from the Greeks and philosophers. He is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
So because God has made us, he is also built into our hearts an inescapable knowledge of him. Each one of us, whether you consider yourself religious or not, you cannot live apart from him. You can't escape your dependence on him. So this tells us what the failure of religion really is. Religion fails us because all people who are all religious are bent toward superstition, which is worship of things that aren't real. The problem with being religious is that we are bent toward bad religion, denying the God who is and gives us life and breath and everything, and then giving ourselves over to, which is worship, things that aren't real, the things that he gives us. The, the gold and the silver and everything else, giving ourselves over to those things as though they were God's. The two images that the, they're borrowed from other pastors, I think really help us understand what he's getting at here. Can you imagine a factory, like a Coke factory or a Sprite factory. Sprite is Coke. Any other factory. Just imagine an assembly line operated by, operated by machine, machinery that's just giving out Coke bottle after Coke bottle, cases of Coke bottles after cases, on pallets after pallets, and it never stops. This factory is just constantly churning out Coke products. The other picture would be, you imagine when you were a kid, maybe you took a fully inflated beach ball and you're in the pool and you tried to push it underneath you with your short and weak arms and just seeing how long you could keep it there underneath you, knowing that eventually my short and weak arms would give out and it would pop up and probably hit me in the face. This is the failure of religion. It's that one, our hearts are idle factories. They're constantly churning out things to give ourselves over to, and these things are not God. And so they fail us. But we just keep going. We keep churning out false God after false God and giving ourselves away to things that God has given us, relationships and, and money and romance. And then giving ourselves over to them, our value, our purpose, our identity as though they were God. All the while pushing down the knowledge of the God who is, who made you, who knows you, who gives you life and breath and everything. This is why religion fails us, but it's because we're churning out false gods and we're pushing down as hard as we can the knowledge of the true God. And what do these false gods do to us? They only take, they don't give. Because how could they? They're fake. They only take away from you. When someone gives me praise, it feels good in that moment because affirmation is a good gift. But then when I give my, my purpose and my value over to that praise, it then becomes empty because I just need more of it. And then I'm chasing after more praise from other people and my heart is churning out these idols after idols and it becomes more and more empty. And I'm acting as though I am standing on my own feet, living and, and breathing and having all of these things without God when he's the one who gives them to me and who am I meant for? And I do it religiously. This is the failure of religion, and it hits every single one of us. So we've seen the inescapability of religion, the failure of religion, but last, let's look at the hope of religion. Is there hope for being religious? So the people of Athens, they brought Paul to the Areopagus because they wanted him to tell them something new. And what he has to say is entirely new, not just then, but also now for you and for me. He calls them away from idolatry, worship of false gods, and to repent, which means to turn back 
toward the God who is. Starting in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God is on an idol made by your hands. He's calling you instead to turn back toward him. Why? He says in verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God is patient with the people he made. He's overlooked ignorance, but through Jesus, he has made himself known by sending him into the world to live and to suffer and die for the world and to be raised from the dead so that we would return to God and have everything in him. This is a very different kind of religion. This is religion turned upside down. It's very different than religion that says that God is within you and basically makes God irrelevant. It's different than the kind of religion that makes God an object or a thing that you need to to serve and that needs stuff from you. Instead, this says that the God that's outside of you, who made everything, the God that you belong to and owe everything to, he has come even nearer into this world suffered and bled and identified with the hurting to give you everything through Jesus. He needs nothing and he gives everything. This is a very different kind of religion. And Jesus is God who became man. And a lot of other myths had stories about a God who became man, but never a God who became a man to die on a cross in the place of the weakest and the neediest. And Jesus was raised from the dead so that idolaters like you and like me would be freed from the slavery of serving things that give you nothing and only take. This is what Paul calls the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It doesn't fail. It saves. Well, how do we turn toward this kind of religion? It's not by standing on our own feet, making God irrelevant, and saying, I have everything on my own. A couple of weeks ago, my, my wife, Mary Lee, she lost track of our son, Robert. Not her fault. She was helping, helping him clean his room. But when he says, I want you to help me clean the room, he means I want you to clean my room. So when she, would, she was making him actually do it, he did what all three-year-olds do, and he screamed at her and he ran away. She cleaned up a few more things and she started looking for him, calling out his name, silence, nothing. And she's calling out his name and getting a little bit angrier, understandably, and still silence. Minutes pass. She looks in all the normal places. She looks in closets. She looks in the fridge. She looks in all the the likely places and still nothing. And and as a parent, that moment of panic starts to build and build. And she starts thinking, did he run outside? Is he headed down Stadium Drive toward King Street to start a new life? (laughs) To to get an application at Portofino's? What's he doing right now? So she goes outside and she races down the street, looks for him and still nothing. In this moment, she really, the panic is there because she's looked everywhere that she can think of and he's nowhere. And she's screaming his name and crying out for him. And she goes into the house, into our living room and she's exasperated and exhausted and it feels like an hour. And she collapses onto the ground and there on the ground, she looks up with tears streaking her face and what she sees is the sleeping face of a toddler underneath the couch. 
Because when he'd run away, he had run away and hid underneath the couch, like the crafty little rat he is. And then he immediately, and just immediately fell asleep in that moment. Right where she was, exasperated and exhausted, she found him. God is not hiding from you, and he's not far off, but it often feels like he is. And why is that? In many ways, the reason is not because he is far off, but because we are so busy churning out other versions of him and pushing down our knowledge of him, standing on our feet when we need to collapse, exasperated and exhausted, and see him right where we are. Because that's where he meets you, needy and broken, dependent on him for life and breath and everything. He is ready He's looking for you and pursuing you. If you're standing on your feet, would you fall down? If you think you don't know him, you do. Would you stop trying to push him down and let the truth of who he is, the one to whom every bit of religious longing finds its answer, would you let it pop up right in your face so that you would know him and you would be known? Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for uh, this, this truth that you are not far off from us. Um, and you, you look at us, those of us, every single one of us who seek to run from you with all of our might and to push you away and find something to replace you. You treat us with patience and with mercy and kindness, asking that we would only fall exhausted and needy down at your feet and find you there. Um, smiling at us and waiting for us. We ask this in your name. Amen.